From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. This is your news for Friday, October 13th. Candidates running for Moab's city council answered to businesses during a debate earlier this month. The Moab Chamber of Commerce hosted the event and quizzed candidates on what they'll do for the business community. What role does the business community play in Moab? What are the biggest challenges that our businesses face? When it comes to business growth, what are your solutions to the limited availability of commercial space? What challenges do businesses Um, What is your stance on multi-use rezoning? It was a lot of business about business, and candidates played to their strengths. Two of them talked about their own experiences as Moab business owners and cited that as part of their reason for running. One was Colin Topper. I've started and operated three successful businesses, and I want to be sure, and the big reason I'm here up here tonight is that those same doors and many of those same opportunities are open to people, other people in this community and people still yet to come to this community. Brad Woodford has also owned businesses in Moab. It's a huge part of why he's running, too. During last summer's big storm, his campground along Mill Creek flooded. And in the aftermath of that, the community came out and helped me. And now I want to help the community. I want to prepare us for more extreme weather events in the future, like the August 20th flood. I'm also focused on making sure our businesses in Moab can not only survive but thrive. Caitlin Myers says her work as a housing advocate in the community has supported business by providing housing to working families. Most of what I love to do is to provide support from the public side to our business community. It's something I'm really looking forward to doing in this role. And I think that looks like providing housing support and childcare support and programs for our students and recreational opportunities. Patrick Robbins referenced his time growing up here in Moab, a time he says has lessons for the current relationship between businesses and local government. I grew up in this town when there was Knowles uh, Hardware and Sprouse Wrights and Jack Walker with Walker Drug. There was an interaction between business and government that worked. I think that the government is here to support business and support the citizens that those businesses serve. Tani Knutson-Boyd is the only incumbent running in this year's municipal election. She's served eight years on the Moab City Council and agrees there should be a dialogue between business and local government. But she had an instruction for the room full of chamber members. I think we have to rely on each other and support one another, whether it's the city supporting the businesses or businesses supporting the city. And please communicate to your city leaders. I've heard several times that the city should do more to support the businesses, but I don't get clear direction on what that would be. One of the more interesting parts of the chamber debate was their rapid-fire questions. Hosts simply asked candidates if they agreed or disagreed with their statements. One of those statements, the concept of a property tax. The city's property tax is currently nothing. The rate is set at zero. Past councils have considered increasing that rate, but the conversation hasn't really gone anywhere. So would candidates consider upping that property tax rate from zero? Although Myers, Topper, and Woodford indicated they were neutral on the issue, Robbins disagreed. I'm against a property tax because our our citizens right now are overburdened already. There's a lot of areas in the city that I see where costs can be cut before we start asking the citizens to delve more out of their pocket. Incumbent Knutson-Boyd said in her eight years of experience on the council, 
the property tax discussion is a little more complicated. We have been told over and over by the people upstate. We have been told when we go for grants. We have been told when we ask for loans. You're not asking your own people for money. I don't support a huge property tax increase. I think it should be very small. I've, I've seen the budget for eight years, and I know where we're getting money from and where there just isn't any more to, to tap. Other rapid-fire questions posed by the chamber brought candidates into full agreement. One of those related to advertising. Grand County currently is legally responsible for marketing Moab using transient room tax dollars, The chamber pressed candidates on whether they would support additional marketing efforts at the city to, quote, increase visitation. No one agreed. Topper says advertising is not quite the city's role. I I think that the city's role in in marketing is maintaining and even developing cared for streets and sidewalks to make sure that that portion of the Moab experience, our product that we're selling to the rest of the world, is well-maintained and cared for. Myers says Grand County is already doing a good job of marketing Moab. You know, I believe that the city should be partnering with the county uh, for sure. I believe, you know, I kind of agree with Colin that um, it's not the city's, the city's job is to serve its residents and to serve our local businesses. Although Woodford disagreed that the city should support additional marketing efforts, when pressed, he did say more help during the shoulder season could be useful for businesses. And so if you can just add just a little bit of revenue in those times of the summer lull and during the winter and maybe keep on those people and have a little more continuity of your employment, uh, that is super helpful for them. These five candidates are running for three seats on the Moab City Council. Each seat carries a four-year term. They'll be joining current council members Jason Taylor and Luke Wojciechowski, as well as Moab's mayor, Joette Langanese. Langanese attended the chamber event and says she's looking forward to tackling the city's issues with this next round of electeds. I I just want to say that this is a really good time for you all to be running for the city council. We've got a lot going on, a lot of good. We also have some challenges. And so you all are going to have to work with the staff and with the current council that's going to continue on and myself to tackle those challenges. And I'm sure you're all up to the task. Election day is November 21st. There's still time to register to vote online. Find those details in the show notes of today's news. And KZMU will be hosting a candidate event with the League of Women Voters again this year. That's coming up live on the airwaves October 30th. If you have questions that you want to hear candidates answer, send them in. Submit them to news at kzmu.org. On Tuesday, the state of Utah announced it is suing TikTok as it claims it, quote, baits children into addictive and unhealthy use. Alex Gonzalez with our partners at the Public News Service reports. During a press conference, Governor Spencer Cox says the social media giant promotes children to stay online for hours at a time. Recent research shows adolescents who spend more than three hours a day on social media face double the risk of experiencing poor mental health outcomes such as depression and anxiety. We will not stand by while these companies fail to take adequate, meaningful action to protect our children. We will prevail in holding social media companies accountable by any means necessary. 
TikTok responded to the lawsuit by saying it does have safeguards in place to mitigate excessive usage. Last year, Cox enacted an order that prohibited state employees to download or use the TikTok app on any state-owned devices due to security concerns. Utah Attorney General Sean Reyes says the lawsuit is the result of what he considers TikTok's violation of multiple provisions within Utah's Consumer Sales Practices Act. He calls the harm produced by social media pervasive as nearly all adolescents engage with social media. Reyes adds the app's algorithm intentionally creates addictive behaviors in children. TikTok designed these features to mimic a cruel slot machine that hooks kids' attention and does not let them go. Even worse, TikTok has trained its computer program to continuously learn how to better manipulate our kids. Reyes alleges TikTok has been dishonest to parents because he says the social media giant has created a false sense of security by standing behind the safety guidelines and provisions it enforces. He says the only way for TikTok to change its practices is if it's put at legal risk. I'm Alex Gonzalez reporting. Utah public safety officials expect more traffic to areas in the path of totality during this weekend's solar eclipse. The same is true in southwest Colorado, where their Department of Transportation expects area public lands to be inundated with visitors. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, KSJD's Chris Clements has more. The eclipse will be visible in the U.S. early on Saturday along a path starting in Oregon and eventually passing over Mesa Verde National Park and the Four Corners region. Lisa Schwantes, a regional communications manager for CDOT, says hotels in the area have been booked for months and that Mesa Verde itself expects to see tens of thousands of visitors for this celestial event. For us in southwestern Colorado, the the fall colors are definitely peaking this weekend as well. So aside from the eclipse event, we are also having folks that are seeing out those fall colors in the high country. Um, so watch out for the leaf peepers. Schwanti says it's also important that people driving on highways this Saturday don't pull over to the side of the road to view the eclipse and instead find a designated area. In Mesa Verde, NASA scientists and park rangers will be at various locations during the eclipse as a resource for the public. Due to the high volume of traffic, parking may be limited. I'm Chris Clements. And now the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. On Saturday, the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe held its annual march against the White Mesa Uranium Mill. This year's protest followed a recent announcement from the company that owns the mill that it plans to reopen uranium mines in LaSalle. Emily Arnson speaks with Sophia Fisher about the tribe's concerns. They're protesting against the White Mesa Mill. Uh, That's a mill that lies a couple miles north of the White Mesa chapter, just south of Blanding, and it processes rare earth elements as well as uh, uranium-bearing waste materials. Mm -hmm. And so are they worried about the processing at the mill? What are they worried about? Yeah, there's a lot of concern about potential slash alleged contamination of groundwater, air, um, wildlife, you know, through potential water contamination. It's been a concern for a while. The mill is several decades old, and detractors have argued that it's not uh, keeping up to date. It's not updating necessary infrastructure and that there could be potential seeps, you know, out of uh, tailings and impoundments into the air or the water. Yeah, I think they have been out of compliance with the EPA for years with their tailings piles. Oh, interesting. I know there was one instance where the EPA cited them a couple years ago and barred them um, from accepting some Superfund waste because one of the impoundments wasn't covered by water and so yeah. it was exposing these radon emitting solids to the air. Um, 
but yeah, I know there have been some controversies that have flared up in the past. Okay. Yeah. So this is kind of an ongoing issue at the mill. The CDC recently published a study about the air quality and the quality of the drinking water. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that came out in June. It was from the CDC and it examined, yeah, drinking water and the air quality around the White Mesa chapter. And it found that there was no, there were no radiation levels in either of those things that were high enough to cause health problems, um, which is interesting. And it definitely backs up, you know, what spokespeople from the mill have said, which is that there's no cause for concern and there there isn't and there's never been any contamination of local air or water. Mm-hmm. But obviously people from the tribe think otherwise. Yeah, they're still concerned. Um, I spoke with Scott Clough, who's the environmental I think, programs director for the tribe, and he said they're going to continue pushing for you know a long-term epidemiological study and, and studying wildlife and things like that. Um, notably, the CDC study didn't look at um, seeps or springs or vegetation or soil, mm-hmm. um, so did not examine potential radiation in any of those sources. And um, I know those are still a cause for concern for the, the tribe. Yeah. Did Clough say anything about the types of health consequences they're seeing within the tribe, or did he talk about that at all? Yeah, he said anecdotally, it seems like there's been an uptick in cancer rates. Um, that's something that Chairperson Manuel Hart um, of the entire Ute Mountain Ute Tribe said uh, just before the march that they're seeing a lot of health disparities in Indian country, um, not just diabetes, but, but cancers. Mm-hmm. And they're linking that to radiation from the mill. Yeah, and this is, you know, it's anecdotal evidence. So there, I don't know if there's been like a, a scientifically established link, but that's definitely the concern. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this march happened sort of in, in conjunction with an announcement that they might be opening a couple mines nearby. Is that correct? Yeah, it's interesting. They were marching, the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe and, and allies were marching against the mill as the mill is actually gearing up to accept kind of traditional uranium ores for the first time in about 10 years, really. Um, yeah, there'll be uh, Energy Fuels Resources, which owns the mill, is planning to reopen its LaSalle Complex mine and then open for the first time the Pinion Plain mine, which is in Arizona. Um, and uranium ore from those mines will both be processed at White Mesa. Wow. Did they say when they're planning on opening those mines? Curtis Moore, a spokesperson for Energy Fuels, said hopefully early next year. Okay. And so the LaSalle Complex mine, that's a that's a few different mines in the LaSalle area. Do you know sort of where those are? Yeah, it's a group of about seven mines. I don't think all of them are being prepared to reopen right now. I think it might just be two. They're all around the town of LaSalle slash around Highway 46, stretching east and west of the town. Um, So kind of along that highway. I don't know if they're visible from the highway, but they're all within a couple miles of it. Yeah. So it's my understanding that opening these mines, it's kind of a big deal because right now White Mesa only processes secondhand uranium or Mm -hmm. uranium that's already been processed elsewhere. And then they'll import that waste and process that on a pretty infrequent basis, it seems. And so maybe opening up these new mines would create the opportunity to have the mill running more frequently. Potentially. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, a big part of their um, work at the mill recently has been the processing of alternate feeds, which are uranium bearing waste materials from other places. They've imported some from as far away as Estonia in the past. Um, and and more, the spokesperson for energy fuel said actually they wish they kind of had more alternate uh, alternate feed because he said it's a very environmentally sound way of extracting uranium Um through kind of recycling these materials. So yeah, it does look like the mill's operations are going to shift somewhat in the future as they return to processing more more traditional uranium-bearing materials. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, I could keep talking about this because I find it really interesting, but maybe we should move on to some other news. Yeah, uh, a group of locals on the Moab Area Housing Task Force are preparing the Moab Area Affordable Housing Plan, which is the first time this plan has been updated since 2017. Okay, what is the new plan outlining? Yeah, the plan does a couple of different things. It examines crucial statistics about Moab's housing stock and then also recommends policy actions to improve the affordability and attainability of housing for locals. Uh, no one needs me to say that housing's an issue here. <laughs> yeah. What was what were some of the surprising or maybe not surprising statistics that they compiled? Yeah, I think one of the headline statistics, and they they shared this at the October 3rd Grand County uh, Commission at a workshop, um, is that one third of housing stock in Grand County is a secondary residence. And they could find this out because primary and secondary residences are actually taxed differently um, in the county. Okay. Do you know by how much they're taxed differently? Yeah, primary residences get a roughly 50% discount on their uh, property taxes. It's either 55 or 45, I can't remember, whereas secondary residences are taxed Uh, at 100% levels. Interesting. And so then Moab City doesn't have property tax, but these residents are being taxed through the county. Yeah, through the county or other taxing entities. So yeah, Moab City does not have a property tax. So a third of housing is secondary residents in Moab. Is that something that the housing task force thinks is too high? Yeah, they recommended actually that by 2030, they're trying to increase the percentage of primary residences from about 66% where it is now to about 80%. Do they outline in the plan how they want to do that? Totally. Yeah, there are a couple of different strategies. And the big one that they said they feel kind of very strongly about, uh, in the words of Laura Harris, who's the chair of the housing task force, is through deed restrictions. You mm-hmm. know, So that's restricting homes. You, one way to do it is to restrict homes to be sold only to, to locals or folks who work here locally. Um, and that's a common tool that's been used by um, in in like affordable or workforce housing developments here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So historically, how much of their recommendations has the city or the county taken when, you know, thinking about property? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I haven't done reporting on that in a while. I know that my predecessor, Carter Poppy, did a report in, I think it was 2021, about the 2017 plan and found that over half the items at that point were incomplete. That being said, it was the midst of the pandemic at that point. So, you know, staff were focusing on on other things. Um, But I know, I do know that this housing plan has been developed uh, very much in collaboration with the city and the county. So I think the hope there is that there's a lot of buy-in to this plan and to the recommendations that it makes. Okay. So it seems like the city and the county are on board with potentially having more deed restrictions that would enable more primary residents. Absolutely. And there are programs actually both within the city and the county that already kind of call for more deed restrictions, such as the high density, house, high density housing overlay at the county and the actively employed household ordinance of the city. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, was there anything else you wanted to say about that? Um, it's an interesting plan. You can check the full thing out online and it'll eventually, it does need to get kind of formal approval and adoption from the city and the county. So there Mm -hmm. will be more presentations on it over the coming weeks. Okay. Okay. So city council candidates had a debate a couple weeks ago. Do you want to sort of summarize what they were debating? Absolutely. So the there are five candidates running for three spots on Moab City Council this fall, and the Moab Chamber of Commerce held a debate on October 2nd that was uh, business-themed for all these candidates. Um, so common topics included, of course, you know, business in Moab, what are its challenges, what can government do to help business, what's an appropriate way to help business. 
Uh, folks also talked about the state of the downtown corridor and how that could impact Main Street businesses. Um, and then other things came up too, such as just like, you know, local infrastructure, housing, which is a challenge for business as it is for everybody else, and a potential property tax, which has been, you know, long been a headline item um, among the city council and, and staff at the city. Yeah. What were some of the highlights of the debate? Yeah, I think, well, on the property tax front, um, only the race's sole incumbent, Tanya Newton Boyd, was also the only one to come out in favor of, of creating a property tax or raising it above 0%. Um, and she gave some interesting reasons as to why. Um, and then candidate Patrick Robbins came out against it. And the other three candidates, uh, Colin Topper, Brad Woodford, and Caitlin Myers, all remained neutral at the time. So that was one one interesting kind of headline item. Okay, so affordable housing business. Mm-hmm. Well, afford- Well, we didn't talk about affordable housing. What was everyone saying about affordable housing? Yeah, well, it's interesting, actually. The question, I think the way it came up is, is they asked, you know, what's the biggest challenge facing businesses? Mm-hmm. And like, literally, everybody said housing. Um, Caitlin Myers was the third person to answer that. And she was like, I think we're all going to say that. Um, and, and she and other folks shared potential solutions uh, to housing. Um, for example, I know Myers was talking about um, strengthening multi-use zoning and infill zoning and prior- prioritizing deed restrictions, creating good landlord programs. Um, Patrick Robbins floated the idea of the city absorbing public lands, maybe up on sand flats to try to build more housing. Mm. Um, one issue that came up a lot was Moab's just like lack of land, given that we are kind of an island in this um, ocean of, of public lands around us. Mm-hmm. Was anyone against affordable housing, like deed restrictions or anything like that? no. No, I don't think there was anything negative said about those. Sophia Fisher, reporter at the Times Independent. Find more stories at moabtimes.com. The Moab Museum is hosting a special ghost town program throughout the fall to explore the history of abandoned towns in the area. Allison Harford of the Moab Sun News speaks with Emily Arntzen about the curious story of one postcard that the museum has traced through many of these towns. Throughout the fall, Mary Langworthy, who is the public programs manager at the Moa Museum, has been running this Grand County Ghost Towns program. So it runs every Tuesday morning at 11 a.m. Nice. So she's talking about ghost towns around Moab? Which which towns? Yes. Yeah, so she's covering five total towns. And the way that she's doing this is by starting with this 1904 postcard that was delivered to a small community called Miner's Basin, which was in the LaSalle Mountains. And to get there, it had to weave its way through a number of post offices in other nearby towns. Um, and those were Cisco, Dewey, Richardson, and Castleton. Okay, so these towns don't exist anymore, and Mary is following the history of one single postcard through a couple of these old towns? Yes, yeah. So the program kind of explores what it means to be a ghost town, and it also explores the history of each of these areas. So Miner's Basin was a mining town, hence the name, Um, It was entirely remote, and for a few years, miners could find gold and silver there. Castleton was kind of a hub for the area, and it was a home to these miners who passed through and ranchers who ran sheep and cattle there. Dewey was a transportation hub, so that was where travelers could use a ferry to cross the Colorado River. Um, So all of these places kind of were based in their industry, And once those industries changed, like when the mining ore dried up, then those towns became the ghost towns that they kind of are today. Mm -hmm. There were these once flourishing communities that are now inhabited by few or no people at all. Yeah. Do any of these towns still have 
um, like a small population of people or which towns do? Yeah, yeah. So we know that um, Cisco is very loosely populated, um, but a lot of the other ones really don't exist today. And so thinking about these ghost towns really makes you think about how people are living in the environment today and kind of makes you think like, how will we look back at Moab once maybe nobody lives here or will it become something like this um, and follow these other towns in the area? Yeah. Were there any anecdotes that you remember from some of these towns? Yeah, so um, the Moab Museum has been publishing a couple little anecdotes in their column every week, but one of my favorites was the story of this woman who lived kind of near Miner's Basin, and um, one year she, it snowed a lot in Miner's Basin, and so this was like a really special treat for her. So she jumped on her horse and went and collected a bunch of snow and then brought it back home to make into ice cream because she had no refrigeration or anything at home. Um, and so snow and this cold icy thing was really rare. Oh, cute. Okay. Yeah. Um, do you know when these towns became ghost towns? Yeah. So all of them were around, um, like in the mid early 1900s, none of them lasted that long, especially miners basin. Like it was only a few years that the mining ore was really rich. Um, so a lot of them were like very quick to kind of become flourishing and then die out again. Mm. Um, yeah. And Mary said also that this program is a really direct response to people asking about ghost towns in the region. Like a lot of visitors who come here are super captivated by Western history and this idea of ghost towns and the museum can provide that and kind of dissipate this notion of ghost towns as like, I don't know, when you see ghost towns in popular media, it's like these old wild, wild west abandoned places. Mm. Um, Swinging saloon doors. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But by providing this history and showing the real families who lived there and often um, like people who descended from those families who lived there still live in Moab today, Mm. then we can provide a lot of context for those places. Yeah. It's maybe less romantic than we like to think. Right, exactly. Great. Uh, Go check that out with Mary. I'm sure it's great. What else happened this week that you want to talk about? I got the chance to chat with some researchers at Utah State University who are looking into the mental health um, of LGBTQ plus Latter-day Saints over the course of 10 years. Mm, Okay. Uh, So this research is coming out of? Coming out of USU. Tyler Lefebvre is an associate professor of psychology there at the Logan campus, and he's heading the research. Okay. And what has his research found so far? So every survey, he's asked a couple of different questions, but the idea is to really track how mental health changes over time. Like, how does mental health change if somebody stays in the church, and how does it change if they leave? Mm -hmm. Um, Like, how what's happening if they lean into more into one identity over the other and how does that balance kind of fluctuate over time okay um and just to give people some context uh, what is the lds church's stance on being gay yeah so the church's official policies that are relatively new state that people who identify as gay lesbian or bisexual are welcome in the church so long as they don't violate the law of chastity that's a quote and reserve sexual relations for a man and woman who are married And so this is kind of the first research 
that's really looking into how that policy affects people's mental health. Um, and by now, Tyler's looking into like, how can LGBTQ plus LDS church members be happiest and healthiest? Um, and so what he's really trying to show, especially in this new survey data that's going to come out, um, is that a lot of these individuals end up leaving the church. Um, and he said it's really important to him to map that trajectory and document that that is what's actually happening. Um, and he also wants to find the rate at which it's happening because mm-hmm. he, he wants to use that to show church leaders that despite saying, you know, you're still welcome here, um, their policies are pushing people out and they're definitely affecting um, these individuals. Okay. Yeah. So he is sort of in the process of proving that maybe the church's stance on the LGBTQ community is pushing people out. And so maybe he's trying to make an argument to the church. Like if you changed your policy about this, you could retain more members of the church. Is that sort of what he's trying to do? Yeah. And he's also trying to say you can retain more members of the church, but you can also make your church members happier. Um, Yeah, so he found that the prime drivers of becoming less religious, so like people who were leaving the church, was identity uncertainty. So um, the more uncertain people were feeling about their sexual or gender identity, the more likely they were to step away from the church. Um, And the more they had personal religious struggles, like conflict with other religious people, that pushed them away from the church too. But then people who stayed in the church and became more religious also reported less identity affirmation in their sexual identity, and they reported more doubt in life. So really, he found that these two conflicting identities were um, acting in opposition to each other and were definitely negatively affecting pretty much everyone who has partaken in this study. Mm. Um, Yeah, and so now he's trying to figure out, like, okay, how can we help people be happy And um, I also talked to Sam Skidmore, who is a USU doctoral student, and he said that people, you know, when they're talking about this research and asking these questions, they're always asking, like, what can we do to help? Because obviously, you know, you stay in the church, your mental health declines, or you leave the the church and your mental health still declines. Um, And he said, really, the answer boils down to just treating everyone like a person and especially allowing LGBTQ plus individuals to be who they are. Mm -hmm. And so is the researcher also a member of the church? Yeah, so both Tyler Lefebvre, the professor of psychology, and Sam Skidmore, who is the doctoral student who's working on the research currently, um, they both identify as queer and they were current or former members of the church. Allison Harford, reporter at the Moab Sun News. Find more stories at moabsunnews.com. That's it for the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. You can find the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes on our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.